This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. Before introducing guests of today's episode, I would like to note just a few things. Physical Activity Researcher Podcast is committed to promoting equality and diversity in all its activities, including selection of guests. We have limited resources to scout all great researchers from different groups of people, so if you know someone who should be as a guest in the podcast, please ask this individual to contact us directly. As another thing, I would like to ask for your help. Being able to deliver this podcast to you, my audience, is based on how many people find, start to listen and follow this podcast. So I would really appreciate little help promoting this podcast. You can do this by subscribing, following the podcast on Twitter, retweeting tweets sometimes, and maybe even giving a good rating if you liked an episode. And now it is time for the actual show and introduction of our great guest of today's episode. Welcome everyone. I'm very excited about the guest of today's episode. He has PhD in exercise physiology from Texas AM University. He has been visiting professor at Chamberlain University in San Antonio. He has been doing consulting work through his Valkyria Wellness Company, and he is currently working as medical science liaison internship at Atlas Medical. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce our guest, Dr. Blaise Collins. Welcome, Blaise. Howdy. Thanks for having me. Howdy. So how is how is everything going in Texas? Uh, it goes well here. Uh, we're prematurely, I think, about to lift some of the coronavirus restrictions, but otherwise it, it seems to be business as, as usual. Yeah. And how how are the restrictions of coronavirus at the moment in, in where you are staying? Uh, so I'm in San Antonio. Uh, most of the urban communities, be it San Antonio, Austin, Texas, uh, Dallas, have been in a full lockdown where essentially you're supposed to just stay at home. Um, some of the grocery stores are open, but you're not supposed to leave aside from groceries, healthcare, or uh, you're allowed to go exercise as well. Uh, the gyms have been closed down since uh, mid-March, so... I know most of my my weight training is probably out the window at this point. Yeah, so you used to go to the gym quite quite often, I I guess. Uh, yes, sir. I shoot for five to six days a week, mostly powerlifting, bodybuilding type. But since the the lockdown, I picked up my mountain bike and got it fixed back up uh, up to fifteen miles now. So. I definitely didn't see myself doing that a year ago. <laughs> yeah, so some some changes. So uh, how do you see in more general, like the gyms are closed, strength training is, is important for many people and 
for health, it's important for all people. How do you see this this situation that this kind of some sort of lockdown or restrictions might continue for quite long? How do you see the situation? Well, uh, I mean, obviously I have a unique perspective on it, but uh, two weeks before the gyms closed, I hit 650 on deadlifts, which I was very stoked about. I'm very happy to hit that. And then the gyms close and every week I know I'm losing around 10% of that max. So once I finally get back in there, it's going to, I would be happy if I hit three plates on deads. But uh, as far as the general population, those that might not competitively lift or might not exercise often, I have noticed just in the neighborhood, probably a five or six fold increase in people out walking with their kids, jogging, bicycling. So Even if the gyms are closed, it seems like more people are exercising, although it could just be at the people that were going to the gym just switched to going outside. So <laughs> hard to tell. Yeah, there's not much research out yet. How how does it go? Do you think it will? We are in the in the beginning anyway, few months in this. And do you think it will stay like that? Or do you do you see that people will change behavior, get get bored of exercising or how do you see it going? Uh, that's I mean, anything I say will be speculation on that. Uh, I know here in Bear County, uh, which is San Antonio, there were, there's a 15% increase from last week in COVID related deaths and around a 25% increase in actual cases. Uh, but for some reason, the state is still looking at opening in phases. So by the end of May, it's supposed to be completely open. But uh, given that we're still increasing cases by 25%, I feel like those restrictions are probably going to go back in place here in a month. Um, as far as people exercising, I think if they've been doing it for a month and a half, they're probably seeing the beneficial changes and the bumps in energy that you would expect to see. So they're probably going to stick with it at this point, I would imagine, for the most part. Mm. There's quite a quite a few things you can do now outside of your home. So I guess that's important for people. So how do you see? You said that you were doing a lot of deadlift, and how do you see all the all the athletes and recreational athletes? How should they take this situation that from the kind of mental health point or or kind of that that perspective and also from the training perspective uh from the training perspective it's really just a matter of being creative um uh, i consider myself a recreational athlete i've done work with uh, like the texas a&m football team in the past and uh most of the bigger universities have the resources available to somehow promote continued training for their athletes Uh, bigger sports teams have access to the gym still, uh, I would imagine. Whereas I would imagine the smaller universities probably don't have those same resources. So you will probably see a lot of injuries this upcoming sports season. Uh, as far as mental health, again, it's just staying creative. Uh, like I said, my my deadlift is probably in free fall. My squat is probably in free fall. But I just hit 15 miles on a mountain bike. And I'm finding new parts of our neighborhood, even that I didn't know existed, uh, including creeks and mountain biking trails and just 
random trails through the woods. So it, it's it's about finding the uh, the positivity in the situation and not focusing on just being stuck inside. Mm. And how would you encourage you? You come from the weightlifting side. How would you advise normal people how to how to keep up their muscle mass, some of the muscle performance, even just for for daily life requirements? Uh, the main thing is doing something. So I, I know the joke right now is everybody is just staying at home playing video games, but even a gallon of water. So if you just have a gallon jug of water, that weighs eight pounds. So if you were to tie a couple of those together, suddenly you could do curls with eight pounds or 16 pounds or 24 pounds. Uh, getting out and walking will help to maintain some of that mass. Uh, I have, I'm lucky enough to have dumbbells in my office and a weight machine, total gym and a punching bag. So I can still kind of do some of those. So really it's just a matter of using what you have and trying to do uh, body weight type activities and increasing how much activity you do. So if you're walking four miles an hour, go for five miles an hour or go an extra mile each week. There's always things you can do to progress with where you're at. Mm. And and how how do you see the situation? I I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but there's quite a bit of overweight problem in in the south of US. How do how do you see for these people and their cardiovascular health if they become more more sedentary during this time because you need to stay inside? How how do you see the situation? That is a huge huge problem. <laughs> and uh Let's see how long how long do you have an hour? <laughs> uh, so sedentary lifestyle and poor diet combined to make the number one cause of death in the U.S. Uh, that includes bringing obesity into the mix, metabolic syndrome. Obesity is a huge problem in the U.S. right now, and for some reason, what you typically see in the media is opioid addiction. Uh, any other number of health concerns, but they never bring up the obesity, uh, which it's essentially an epidemic at this point. Um, obesity is at 99% of the time, it is something that is controllable. It's not your genes, unless you're considering the pizza in the refrigerator, your genetics. Um, it's, it's typically a result of not exercising and eating very poorly. Now in the United States, where if we have the choice between a hamburger or a salad, most people are going to ask for the hamburger, but to get pizza as the buns instead of just buns. Uh, so the Western diet in and of itself leads to obesity. Now that we have the coronavirus, where basically the government saying stay indoors, that's just an added excuse. So many people that were going to be sedentary either way, now they're going to continue being sedentary and probably more so. So obesity is a huge problem. Lack of activity is a huge problem. Poor diet's a huge problem. Uh, I don't think that we're doing enough to address those. Like, there needs to be more public outreach to, to help give ideas for people to get out and be active. Mm. And and you mentioned that the obesity is not brought up in the media. Why, why is that? Uh I'm trying to think of the best way I can put it. It's it's not a sexy enough topic. I think that's probably the probably the best way I could put it. It's it's not a topic that 
really excites people or is attractive to people. Um, especially right now we have the fat acceptance movements and body positivity, which are nice, but I feel like they do more harm than they do good. Um, I mean, everybody should accept themselves, but that doesn't mean that you can't strive to improve on, on yourself. So, uh, it doesn't get brought up in the media because I, I, I guess because people see it as offensive to bring up, even though it's leading to the number one cause of death in the U S. So I, I don't really have a, um, a solid answer on that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. Not an easy, easy question. So, so the obesity is a big problem. Do you, how should it, how should it be handled? How should it be brought up that there could be a positive change towards the better? Uh, are you familiar? Um, I'm trying to think. So Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think everyone on the planet knows him, <laughs> uh, helped yeah. to create the president's fitness council. I want to say early nineties or late eighties. Uh, and in that kids had to go through, it was essentially standardized testing, uh, sit-ups, uh, how fast can you run a mile, push-ups, pull-ups, doing things like that are linked to lifetime physical activity. So starting as a, as a child to exercise helps promote that later on in life. Uh, but right now we're seeing schools that are not bringing in the money that they should. Physical education is one of the first things that are cut. Uh, even at colleges, if you're not in the kinesiology field, typically you're doing a quarter or less of the uh, fit physical activity electives. Uh, and then there's, there's nothing to promote wellness after school. So once you've graduated, your entire fitness, health, and wellness is solely on you. There's no real resource out there to promote you to get up and go. So I think a couple things we could do or promote more public outreach type activities. Uh, I know some good communities, ours is one of those, uh, will have like the 5k fun runs and half marathons, things like that. Um, if some insurance companies actually have allowances and programs in place to reward physical activity, but we need to think of something, and I don't have the answer to that, but we need to think of something that we could improve outreach, essentially. Mm, yeah, not an easy easy question and easy task. <laughs> Do you think there's some some concrete things that could be done at the moment as we have this, uh, this coronavirus and self-isolation going? Is there anything, even small things, that we could do to help the health of, of overweight and obese people? Well, uh, I'm actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna plug Phoebe on here in a second for you. <laughs> uh, but for a few years now, we've had access to, uh, devices, whether it be in your phone, be a watch, Fibion has a device as well that you can stick in your pocket. Uh, but they track activity. Um, and some insurance companies will actually link up to those and see that you're walking 10,000, 20,000 steps a day. And that then allows them to quantify how much activity you're doing. Uh, so a lot of the times you can't change people. You can't change how people think. You can't change the actual person, but you can influence what they do. And people in general like games. So if you can 
give them devices to mon monitor their walking and set it up as a game or where they can actually see graphically how well they're doing. I, that has shown success in the past. So something along those lines or uh, we could do social distancing yoga walking down the street. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Chal challenging things. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy to understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. So you, you mentioned that you're interested about nutrition. Uh, what kind of things you find the most interesting in the nutrition science at the moment? Uh, misinformation would probably be the big one. Um, the, the diets that are popular change based on what year it is rather than what the science says. I was lucky enough to, so I was at two labs at A&M. The second lab I worked with uh, was more the, the human side. First lab was more the mice side. Uh, but that second lab, the lab director, Dr. Richard Kreider, was uh, one of the founding members of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Uh, and they're if anybody wants to check out their link, it's issn.org. Uh, but there is a wealth of information on there for nutrition. And the primary thing is not whether you're doing keto or whether you're doing high carb or whether you're doing some apple cider balsamic vinaigrette cleanse or whatever. Uh, what really matters is how much protein you're getting. So just nutrition, not even considering ergogenic aids like creatine and caffeine, uh, just protein. Protein is the most important thing. Uh, they found no difference between high fat and high carb as long as protein was, uh, was normalized between the two. Um, there's multiple position stands on that. Now, ergogenic aids, pick your poison, and I could probably go <laughs> way too in detail on it. Yeah. So could you, could you tell more about protein first? Like what are the, the positive effects? How much do you see that people should get it? How is it different between, between different groups of people? Uh, so protein, there's, there's the common misconception that protein is protein. Uh, meaning what kind of protein you take doesn't matter as long as you're getting the protein. So you have soy protein, you have whey protein, you have calcium protein. All of those are going to add to the amino acid pool within the body. So what that is, is uh, the proteins are broken down. You have amino acid pool that's within the body that are then used to guide protein synthesis, which would mean uh, increasing muscle mass or repairing tissues um, or altering cellular functions throughout the body. So one of the things, like take veganism as an example, where your sole source of protein is soy protein, uh, that could have estrogenic effects. There's been some literature showing that, but 
it has to be your sole source for that to occur. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, the general population, as long as they're getting their one to two grams per pound, uh, they're going to see positive effects such as increased energy levels, decreased hunger, uh, decreased chance of illness, increased muscle mass. There's a lot of different things that go along with it. Uh, it's you could go on and on and on just on protein alone. <laughs> yeah, no, I I think it's it's interesting. So how how do you see? I think there's a bigger trend in many countries, probably globally, to eat less meat and and get more of the protein from from vegetarian sources how people should should eat when they they do this and what kind of things need to be considered well i'm a meatitarian it's a life choice it's a hard one but <laughs> um i don't have any issue with vegan diets i think if done right they are just as effective as an animal-based diet the problem is you have any number of celebrities and Instagram quote unquote influencers that will give their opinion on it, but pass it off as expert advice or authoritative direction. So the main thing is, especially when starting a new diet, first you need to consult with your physician in many, many cases. That's, that's a CYA type thing there. Uh, but also do your research on it. So you don't want to just jump into a diet because you saw it on Facebook. You want to jump into it. You don't want to jump into anything. You want to slowly ease into it. That avoids the shock to the system. Um, sure. I know you've, you've probably heard of uh, keto and Atkins who hasn't right. But um, when you start cutting carbs out like that, it leads to uh, what's called the keto fog where your brain, you just feel like everything's slow. You can't really think straight. Your energy levels are down. Uh, as far as a vegan diet, you're if you suddenly cut out animal proteins, you're going to have to get used to digesting plant proteins, uh, which our bodies are not as efficient at as, say, a mouse or a ruminant like a sheep. So, again, it's a matter of slowly easing into it, doing your research on what foods you need and what foods are just taste good that you can add. Uh, and then keep listening to your body is the big one. So if your body's acting sick, then you probably need to change something. Mm. And when when you say that the the digestion needs to get used to it, do you usually get stomach problems, or is it just that you cannot absorb all the protein, or what kind of things you will you can expect? Uh, as far as not absorbing it, uh, there are differing schools of thought on that one. Um, like there I've, I've seen some say that 25 grams is the most some say at 50 uh most the protein that's not immediately digested typically goes amino acid pool or is excreted in the urine uh as you'll see like a, a net or a net positive or net negative nitrogen balance which will be indicative of the um, body's protein synthesis uh so as far as plants, you have to eat different types of plants most times to get the essential amino acids as opposed to an animal protein. So let's say I eat steak or eat chicken, you're getting complete proteins that have all the essential amino acids, whereas 
a plant. Um, so I'm not an expert on vegan diet, but I think soy and maybe one other are the only two, uh, only two proteins and plants that are complete proteins. Whereas others, you have to eat varieties of plants to get all those essential amino acids in. Mm. And and how do you see like the individual amino acids? Is there benefit or harmful effects eating eating them individually as supplements? Uh, so supplements are called supplements because well, it's in the name. Uh, so they're meant to supplement your diet. There's a big trend right now for branch chain amino acids (BCAAs) uh, that are supposed to They're purported to increase athletic performance and all, uh, I don't know if you've seen the literature or not, but they don't. <laughs> um, so they do actually improve on recovery, but some of the, the benefits that they're touting are taking BCAAs will help to uh, improve your energy levels, improve athletic performance, and um, increase your 1RM when the reality is they just decrease your recovery time. Now there are other amino acids that people like to look at. Uh, the one that comes to mind first would be L-leucine, which has been shown in elderly patients and uh, otherwise healthy to improve protein synthesis and improve muscle mass. It has some evidence in younger, otherwise healthy athletes and Uh, recreational lifters, but uh, I don't think it's compelling at this point. Uh, there's also methionine, which can help with antioxidation, but uh, again, it's not enough information to make a uh, make a conclusive remark on. Hmm. And and you said that with leucine, there's some some effects for elderly and some some normal people would you recommend eating it uh as as a supplement for for any group of people um i mean really you can get it just from proper diet that's that's one of the things that i don't think gets uh it doesn't get enough attention but the essential amino acids if if you're a animal based diet or if you have been doing the, the vegan or vegetarian diets and know which foods to eat. Uh, you get all the amino acids you need from those. Um, typically, again, you want to shoot for the gram to two grams of protein a day per pound of body weight. Uh, but you're going to probably get the right amount just from diet alone. The supplements, they're for one, they're not regulated. So, Anybody can put whatever they want in these, and there's no regulation, so you don't even know if it's the, exactly what they're saying. The proprietary blend that you see on all these supplements is just their own whatever they decided to put in. I've heard of sawdust being put in stuff. So uh, as far as individual amino acids, I don't see a big point to it. Mm. And and you said before we started talking about protein that. There's no difference usually in the scientific studies between low fat and low carb diet. So, so what do you see as the key things in the nutrition for for normal people? Uh, the big thing is is eat healthy. Uh, I think most of us know that if you're offered a salad or you're offered a hamburger, 
probably take the salad with, uh, well, in my case, take the salad with some shrimp or chicken or steak cut up on it. But we know that there's a difference between healthy food and unhealthy food. And I think a big part of what causes most people to fall off the whatever diet they jump on or um, cause people to sink into eating bad food is they overthink it. Uh, Like think of uh, the New Year's resolution. Everybody decides that they're going to eat healthier this year. By February, they've given up on that. So the best advice I can give is instead of counting every calorie you eat, eat until full, call it good, but make healthy choices. So eat a salad to your full. Don't eat hamburgers until and then gorge yourself past that. Uh, as long as you're getting the protein in and uh, as long as you're getting the protein in, you should be fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree with the really, really staying, stay, stick with the basics. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian. From researchers to researchers. And, and if we go to the ergogenic aids and we started the discussion that you woke up this morning and you didn't have the caffeine in the fridge, how, <laughs> how are your ergogenic aids? What, what, do you, what do you think of them? So ergogenic aids are a fun conversation that can really be split into the three or four that actually work and the 2,500 that don't but are marketed as such. Um, I do need to correct something I said earlier. I said the ISSN website is issn.org. It's actually sportsnutritionsociety.org. Um, but they do have position stands that are uh, freely available for anyone to look at. Uh, so my mm-hmm. dissertation was actually in – it was on caffeine. So we were looking at a ready-to-drink pre-workout. Uh, I, I won't talk about the company, but – uh, the primary ingredient was caffeine. So I became an expert on caffeine. But if you look at today's market, what are the what are the three first ones that come to mind? Mm, sorry, can you say that again? Uh, if, you, if you look at today's market, what are the three ergogenic aids that come to mind first? I'm not sure. Caffeine, creatine, and what would be the third? Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. So uh, those are those are two of the main ones, and then uh, beta alanine, and then also all the individual uh, uh, individual amino acids. So caffeine. Actually, I'm gonna come back to caffeine here in a second. Creatine. You you need three to five grams a day of creatine, and it has to load. Uh, now, depending on which study you read. There needs to be a 20 gram a day for a week loading phase, or you just do three to five grams every day forever. There's 
been no no recent evidence to actually cycle on and off of creatine. So you can just keep taking it and taking it and taking it. What is not true is if I take creatine right now, the workout I do in 30 minutes will not get any benefit from that creatine. So creatine is not a pre-workout. It's a something that you need to address in your diet, which anybody that eats red meat actually doesn't need to take extra creatine, but I digress. Uh, beta alanine, similar to creatine, you need four to six grams a day, and it takes three to four weeks before you actually see a benefit from it. Uh, and beta alanine just allows you to do extra by uh, regulating the muscle pH. So, you know, when, when you're lifting heavy or running a lot, your muscles start to burn. Uh, that's due mostly to pH, but also, you know, cytokines and uh, CNS uh, transmitters. Caffeine, on the other hand, as you exercise, there is a protein called adenosine that builds up, and that's what makes you feel tired. What caffeine does is block that. So while beta alanine and creatine require a long loading phase to have any effect on your workouts, caffeine, if you take it immediately before exercising, will increase the effectiveness of the exercise and also make it seem easier. So they've looked at studies using like the Borg RPE rating of perceived exertion and seen that at the same intensity, the caffeine group would report a lower perceived exertion. And typically you want, uh, I think 300 milligrams is, is kind of the average dose, but you can do up to five grams per kilogram uh, and still be safe. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. And how, how do you, have you seen the new study? So I don't know how new they are, but there's a different people are metabolizing caffeine with the different, different speed. And and then the fast the ones who are metabolizing it fast will get the bigger benefit. I think I read. Have you have you read these studies? Uh, I'd have to go back and look at it. Um, since you bring up the different formulations too, that does remind me. Um, so as far as creatine, creatine monohydrate it has been shown time and time and time again to have the, the most significant effects. And it's also the cheapest, but we keep seeing new creatines put out that like ethyl ester, hydrochloride, you name it, that have no improved effect, but they can then market it as a new word and sell it for more. Also creatine, if left suspended in water for more than like 12 hours or so becomes creatinine. So it's completely useless at that point. So some of the, the caffeinated beverages being sold right now, uh, or market as creatine supplements the creatine in it is inert by the time you drink it so it's not actually a creatine supplement uh as far as what you asked on the caffeine i haven't read those i haven't seen those studies um but i can say that uh, caffeine from a pre-workout or from an energy drink versus caffeine from coffee do have different effects uh, some of the some of the studies I came across during my dissertation showed that the coffee group actually did not experience the same improvements as the caffeine only group. Um, the authors suggested it might be something to do with the enzymes in the coffee may alter the function. I don't know past that. So. All right, that's that's really interesting. That it it could be better 
the caffeine in the energy drink than in the coffee because I I really like coffee so that's my yeah. source most of the time yeah I asked about the slow and fast metabolizing because I'm I'm surely a slow metabolizer so I like to drink coffee but I need to be really careful because it's really easily affecting my sleep oh, and yeah. I need to kind of I need to kind of come down from my caffeine intake when I start to feel the effects and then it kind of slowly creeps up again and then I need to cut down but I can I can really like see the effects in the training that it's especially after working the day and you want to do a good training it's I, I think it's really really good way and h- how do you see caffeine creatine and beta alanine they are effective do you, would you recommend them for the normal people and and who uh typically yes um creatine hasn't really been associated with any side effects there has been some saying that uh water retention which isn't really inherently dangerous um but creatine itself has not been associated with negative side effects beta alanine is also safe and effective uh the only downside with that is if you take the entire four to six gram dose at the same time uh, you undergo what's called paresthesia where your skin starts to tingle a lot uh, and then caffeine the ergogenic range is three to five milligrams per kilogram uh, you can go up to nine safely but there's no added benefit so that's three to uh, typically 300 to 500 milligrams the lethal dose is from five to 10 grams so as long as you're staying under a gram you're going to be safe but all three of those uh, do have evidenced effects on exercise now there's a lot that don't um, like you see niacin in most workout supplements Uh, this is from industry professionals, but niacin is literally put in those supplements so that you feel it quote unquote kick in because the niacin causes the skin tingles just like the beta alanine does. Uh, and then all the, the BCAs, as we covered earlier, those don't add to your workout. They just help with recovery. Uh, so there, there's, there's just entirely too many supplements out there and all of them purport to be the best one mm. and and you mentioned the the other additions in the energy drink is there something you should avoid and is there something that's that's really beneficial uh processed sugar is typically a good one to avoid but the trade-off there is if you're drinking multiple energy drinks in a day you're trading off the processed sugar for aspartame and sucralose and all these other uh artificial sweeteners which have been yeah they've been linked to various various health issues um but it's all things in moderation is the big thing i haven't really come across much in the various uh, energy drinks and protein bars and all that 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 just screams out to me as being something bad aside from processed sugar Hmm. And and as you have been studying the caffeine, is there have you seen any like kind of long term effects when you use it? Addiction? Is there any any downsides using caffeine than the other than it might disturb your sleep? Uh, headaches. So uh, during 
doctoral studies. I know I was drinking a lot of caffeine at that point. <laughs> I, th I think most of us probably were. Uh, during my postdoc, um, we had a couple studies going on, but I was staying up late most nights trying to figure out how to get this tourniquet system to work in pigs. And I know caffeine intake went up, but uh, there were a couple times where I tried to just quit the caffeine and it was like headaches for days. I, I get migraines on occasion anyways, but uh, trying to drink, trying to quit drinking caffeine led to almost migraine like after effects. But those are just typical withdrawal symptoms. I didn't notice any change in sleep, really. Just uh, I'd have a headache and I was more irritable. Mm. And yeah, you mentioned the artificial sweeteners. I haven't read too well the literature. I have just sometimes skimmed a little bit in, in PubMed. And I I think most often I, I think that they are kind of exaggerated in the popular readings that what are the effects? What What is your take on how, how bad they are or are they bad? Uh, I'm not actually an expert on, on those, but what I do know, um, a lot of them will cause like an artificial insulin spike, like phenylalanine is one of those. So you end up with the spike in your storage hormone. So even though you're not actually putting extra sugar in there, you might be storing extra stuff that you've recently, uh, but I'm not actually an expert on the sweeteners so i can't talk too much on those yeah. i've heard them linked uh, to things like alzheimer's and stuff but i don't i don't know the literature well enough on there to to authoritatively say yeah and and when you when you send things that you are expert and interested in one was exercise is medicine could you could you tell more about your your take on exercise is medicine so kind of how we started the conversation was uh, like we have the coronavirus right now and people are having to think of new ways to exercise. One good thing that's come out of it is I know I'm one of these people that I would stay inside all day working at the computer, uh, whether it be developing studies or talking to colleagues or you know, whatever. I was, I was inside and that'd be outside for about 20 seconds to walk to the car. And then I was inside at the gym and then inside at home. One of the good things from the, from the coronavirus is now people are getting outside and walking, um, which sunlight being outside have been linked to higher mental health. Uh, onto the exercises medicine, exercising just by itself, not even bringing in the uh, outdoors or indoors components. Um, it helps to improve energy levels, increase your mental state, uh, helps with cognitive function, um, helps with libido, sleep quality, your self-confidence. So it helps with a ton of things, but it also helps to increase your immunity. So I'm sure you saw about the, the Navy ship where probably 90% of the sailors tested positive for coronavirus, but there were only a handful that were actually symptomatic. And last I checked, that's still the same. Now look at their lifestyle as opposed to the remaining population that's been diagnosed with COVID and those that have died. And most of the ones that have become critical or died, have, they don't 
really exercise much. And that goes for most illnesses. As long as you exercise, you improve your immune response, you improve your immune response, you decrease your risk of, of getting sick. And and off many cases, you can actually reverse being sick with exercise. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid, and incredibly sturdy. I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active and inactive periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. Fibion, from researchers to researchers. How do you find the kind of the phrase exercise is medicine? Is it good phrase for for normal people to get the exercise labeled as a medicine? Because it kind of makes it very clinical and something it doesn't sound too much of fun or something. Do you think it should be kind of in the scientific and medical discussion that exercise is medicine, but how should we get it to people? See, in short, yes. <laughs> uh, so what got me into healthcare, I started working at a cardiac rehab as an exercise physiologist. And I mean, there were quite a few patients that were actually able to come off of their diabetes meds or like drastically reduce them after going through rehabilit cardiac rehab and pulmonary rehab. Uh, the I started getting heavily involved in the American College of Sports Medicine. So the ACSM, uh, which is kind of our governing body on exercise, and they're actually the ones that coined the term exercise is medicine. But I started getting involved with them and really keeping up to date on the literature coming out of the ACSM and in conversations with physicians that led to drastic increases in patient referrals. I think it was around double the first year. But it also led to getting invited to give lectures within the community. So gave quite a few lectures for diabetes support groups uh, throughout my hometown of Odessa. So just that part did improve awareness, but that is a good point you make on exercise as medicine. And most people don't want to take extra medicine. So uh, I think ACSM's done very, very well with, with getting exercise awareness out there, especially to the medical and scientific communities. Um, as far as getting it to the community, uh, that's going to have to be something that's more of a community-led type thing. So you'd have to have a mayor that wants to start putting out initiatives to get people out and walk, stuff like that. Um, people like like to be around other people. So the more you can do to promote people exercising together, I think, would be kind of the way to go. Mm. And and you mentioned that you worked with in cardiac rehabilitation. What did you what did you learn doing doing that job? Uh, that's where I really developed my love for research. Um, when I first started there, uh, I just finished my bachelor's and just started my master's. So with the master's, I'd started doing research, but with the cardiac rehab, I started doing research that wasn't for a grade. So I just enjoyed going out and bringing in new information. Uh, 
So through cardiac rehab, I learned how to write effective educational materials, um, how to effectively interact with physicians and uh, internal and external stakeholders to the hospital, uh, but also how to take those information and make them so that the patients could understand. But then uh, start developing those educational materials led me to getting more involved in actual organizations. Uh, like I did, I was a, a chair for the American Heart Walk uh, one year. Uh, and then just on a whim, I applied to A&M and uh, that the rest is history. Went off and started working on a, the exercise genetics and then exercise adaptation and then the postdoc here in San Antonio. Yeah, and and now you're working as a medical science liaison. Could you could you tell about more? I I don't really know what is is in the job descrip- description. Uh, the the so the medical science liaison, the MSL, it's a kind of a hidden gem of science. So scientists can either go into academia and teach, or be at the lab and research. Those are typically what what people think of when they when they think of the term scientist or professor uh i love research i love talking about science i love planning science i love everything to do with science except for begging for money so my idea could be as good as yours but you know whoever's giving the money might you know they might have already been biased towards giving you money or giving someone else money get the idea it's almost like a shark fight (laughs) With the MSL role, essentially what you're doing is you're developing educational materials, which I think I touched on that a second ago. Uh, you're interacting with physicians, which uh, you know, I've done that in the past as well. But the key goal is to have peer-to-peer conversations with the physicians so you get insights on what their patients need, but you can also tell them what the studies are showing about uh, your affiliated drug. So uh, doing the internship with Atlas Medical, we're doing uh, orthopedic medical devices and therapeutics, adjuvant treatments. Um, And basically what that is, is I'm reaching out to uh, orthopedic surgeons and uh, primarily spines, and I'll give them what what the data show on our products. And it's separate from cells with the MSL. Uh, we can talk about off-label, plan new studies with cells. They're talking about money. They're not allowed to talk about off-label stuff. So uh, the, the MSL is essentially a, a we educate physicians and then we learn from physicians to help guide research. Mm. And it it sounds like you you like the like the job quite a bit. Yes, sir. I, again, I love science. Um, and with this role. I can talk about science and talk about data without having to beg people for money, which is nice. <laughs> yeah, so, sounds good. And who who would you see that is a, is a good fit for MSL work, and who should stay as a researcher and beg for the money? Where do you see the line in types uh, of people? I don't think there is a line. So, like, I'm an INTJ. Um, I'm primarily introverted. Uh, I hit the scientists like, you know, the bookworm uh, aside from the gym stuff. <laughs> uh, 
really it's just a matter of where your passion's at. My passion is talking about science and, and science communication. Um, I do love research. I love planning it, love analyzing everything involved with it. Uh, but I also like to, I want to teach people. And oftentimes in the lab, you lose contact with people because you're typically in there with one or two other people and you kind of end up with your own little microcosm. So even though I'm introverted, I do like to get out and interact with other people because that's the only way for me to mentally grow is to take in other people's thoughts and opinions and ideas and integrate those so that I can, I can be a better scientist. Mm, yeah, all, all very interesting. And, and before the discussion, you mentioned that you also like debunking the myths. What's your top one debunking? Oh, the altitude training mask. Please go on. Uh, I, I mean, everybody, if, if faced with the option of making training gains and doing better with your training or spending $80 to go backwards, not very many people are going to go with option B. Uh, the, the thing with those is, so in exercise physiology, there's the live high, train low. So if you live high, you make those adaptations to carry more oxygen and increase your recovery, increase muscle mass, all those things that come along with higher altitude. Then you come low to train and you get better training efficiency. So somebody watched Batman entirely too many times and uh, made a mask that restricts breathing. I think the first time I saw it was like one of those UFC shows. But this yeah. mask is supposed to reduce or to restrict breathing, which the concept is that it's supposed to mimic altitude training. In reality, you're just able to take in less oxygen, which means your training efficiency goes down. So you might feel like you're doing the same amount as the person next to you, but in reality, you're doing much less. Uh, oxygen is only a limiting factor in highly elite athletes uh it's it's not a factor in recreational or even collegiate or professional only in elite so you're not doing anything with the oxygen there with the mask uh you're not strengthening up your lung tissue or anything like that your oxygen carrying capacity is going to remain the same either way so essentially you're spending 80 dollars to train harder to get less is kind of where it comes down to Yeah, that's a great summary. I think it's maybe a good good indication how how you can market almost anything. I I guess oh, they yeah. are selling it quite well. So so let's take let's take another one. What what's your top two to debunking? Um so I, I know CrossFit gets a lot of hate. Um I don't I don't mind it. <laughs> uh do y'all is there CrossFit in Finland? Yeah, there is. Yeah, I know it's kind of become like a probably a global phenomenon so it initially started off kind of as navy seals training uh but it leads it led to the term functional training which again that that term drives me up the wall is uh deadlifts aren't really considered functional but anything that's building up your muscle is functional it's going to improve your joint health it's going to improve your balance it's going to improve everything um So the term going through 
whether it be CrossFit or the high intensity interval training or group exercise, all these different programs right now that revolve around functional fitness, that's their whole marketing is it's functional. Whereas if you just teach people the basics, you don't need complicated movements where you're kipping and doing handstand pushups on the wall. You can use a dumbbell and get more adaptation, but safer. Uh, there's no need to add all those extra. They're not bad if done right, but for somebody just starting to exercise or just getting into it, those aren't good programs to start people on. Yeah, I I fully agree. I had I had a recording with Kieran Fairman, who's exercise oncologist, uh-huh. and his his opinion was that that the best movement for cancer patients is is deadlift do you Mm -hmm. do you agree uh deadlift and squat um with the valkyria wellness which you probably appreciate the name being (laughs) from finland uh so it's Mm -hmm. uh, i'm big on on my norse ancestry and all that so it's where i came up with valkyria wellness but uh sorry so yeah squat and deadlift are always the first thing i start people on uh the first workout I put people on, regardless of age or sex or well, medical history obviously does matter, but uh, is squats. So probably my biggest success story back in cardiac rehab, this lady came in, she was like early 90s, was on a walker, could walk maybe 10 to 15 feet at a time before having to sit on the walker. So the first day in there, she did ten. <laughs> she did ten sets of ten squats, but <laughs> so the way I did it was had her sit in a chair, asked her to stand up. It's like, uh, could you do it again? So that was the first set of ten, and then nine sets later, she was done. So that was her, her entire workout for the day. It was essentially German volume training with body weight. So she was sore, obviously, but. And she hated me for the first couple of weeks. But by the time that 12 week program was done, she was walking three miles a day without a walker. So I'd like to start with squats and deadlifts because they develop the legs, they develop the lower back. And oftentimes they completely get rid of knee and lower back pain and hip pain. So doing those, if, if it doesn't hurt to walk, you're more likely to get up and walk. So with cancer patients as well, um, you're getting more bang for your butt from each movement if you're doing deadlifts and squats because with cancer, you'll exercise for a week or two, but then chemo is going to knock you down for a week or two. So you want to get as much as you can in those couple weeks before you're back on your back trying to recover. Yeah, yeah, that all makes sense. Yeah, it's been, we've been discussing about one hour. Is there anything else you would like to, to add to these discussions? Uh, I can't think of anything right now. Um, I did try to learn some Finnish. Uh, I, I saw this one and it was just very random. So I had to try to figure out how to say it, but Ilmatin Yala Kusini on Taina Ankariata. My hovercraft is full of eels. Uh, I'm sorry. I saw that. And it was hilarious to me. It was completely yeah. random. Uh, yeah, that's good that you you learn learning Finnish. It's it's very useful language. Almost nobody is talking it in the world. 
Yeah. So, so what would be your final remarks for the for this podcast? Uh, well, first, thank you very much for having me on. That was uh, Haska Tabata. It was nice to meet you. Um, yeah. See, I even learned some Finnish in the process. Uh, or Suomi, I'm sorry. Um, thank you for having me on. It was, it was very nice talking. Uh, I would strongly suggest right now it's it's an unprecedented moment in our history. Um, across the world, people are stuck inside their homes. Uh, they're, the mentals the mental health decline is, is definitely quantifiable. So the best thing you can do is get out and at the very least walk, um, get out, walk around the block. Uh, as long as you stay six feet away from people, you're well within the law. Uh, but also don't worry so much. So, you know, we have, if, if you're worried that you are sick, then probably stay inside, do body weight exercise but if you feel fine, just go out, walk, jog, bicycle, do bodyweight exercises. There are a number of things you can do that can help increase your fitness throughout this. So you actually come out a stronger person on the other end. Yeah, I I agree. It was it was a pleasure to have you place. Thank you for taking the time for this podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.